This is Jack Armstrong reporting live from Radio 1190. And with me today is Eugene Rush and Harrell Biggie, here today to talk about their recent success in the DARPA Subterranean Challenge. You guys give a hello for me. Hello. This is Eugene here. Mm-hmm. Hi, this is Harrell here. Thanks for being here, guys. Now, I wanted to first start today this interview with discussing, I know I, I took the liberty of checking out your LinkedIn, Eugene, and you talked about Cuban supervised autonomy. That was one thing that I noticed. Mm-hmm. For the DARPA Subterranean Challenge, I wanted to talk to you both about, and you first can answer it and then Harrell, what does autonomy and human supervised autonomy look to you guys? What, what does it look like, especially with what you do day to day? Uh, so a big part of this challenge is a big part of this challenge is pushing um, autonomous autonomous technologies in the sense of um... all right welcome back to news underground sorry about the delay uh, with me today again is Eugene Rush and Harwell Biggie I again and Jack Armstrong and we're discussing their recent success in the darkest subterranean challenge Eugene you were saying about what autonomy looks like and human super human supervised autonomy looks like in your day-to-day research. Yeah. Um, so I just to back up, like kind of the the context of the DARPA subterranean challenge is trying to push autonomous systems in real world settings. So like an analogy I like to give is like artificial intelligence and autonomy started out in factories with factory automation, which is generally very um, well-defined and engineered environments without with many, very few unknowns. Um, more recently, we've seen like autonomous driving, self-driving cars, trying to push autonomy onto roadways, which still have a certain amount of structure and rules about them. And then this DARPA subterranean challenge, which is focused on underground search and rescue, is kind of asking the question, can robots and uh, autonomous systems be used in like an arbitrary kind of general setting where there might not be any structure, any rules, um, in the environment, and you might not know the situation until you get there. Or you have anything to add to that? Sure. So another kind of aspect that goes there is the human supervised autonomy. Um, and one of the things that DARPA emphasized was having a fleet of robots. So for instance, we deployed four different robots to go and do the search and rescue mission, and we could only have one person supervising that mission, which means a lot of the higher level functions the robot does have to happen on their own or be autonomous. And there's very little kind of interaction between the human supervising this kind of mission and what actually happens out on the course. Um, Another kind of key challenge that we can talk about a little bit later is just doing networking underground and being able to send messages back and forth to our robots. Um, These are all kind of caves and tunnels where there's no Wi-Fi, nothing like that. So anything we do down there, we have to deploy our own Wi-Fi and connect our robots in that manner. Okay. No, I I like hearing that Um, for, I guess one or both of you can answer this. Um, what, what do those messages look like? How do you have to utilize them to go through the challenge? Sure. So what the capabilities, um, so kind of a higher level goal of the challenge, the way it was structured was we were searching for objects underground. The robot would report the object and the location of it. For instance, like a backpack or a mannequin or a climbing rope. And so one of our messages looked like those reports and those would get sent back to our human supervisor who could view an image and the text of what the object was and then a position. Uh, the human supervisor could also send different kind of waypoints. He was getting a low resolution map back from the robot 
and could press places on the map that he wanted the robot to go. But our strategy primarily revolved on having the robots choose their own places to go with limited intervention from the supervisor. All right, yeah. Um, now, again, also taking from Eugene's LinkedIn, um, I did check out and see that your research, you said, aimed to be inspired by nature. And I wanted to ask both of you, how did nature first inspire any sort of aspect of the challenge and the work that you did, and what it was like when uh, nature was unkind to you guys in the challenge, because I know you said there's like very, like a, a lot of obstacles in the challenge. Yeah, sure. So, um, I mean, I don't know, like probably like a lot of kids, I was like really interested in like insects and kind of like um, little crawly creatures when I was a kid. And I feel like that's kind of carried forward in my kind of um, professional life and ac academic research. So like my lab group is um, they're called Bio-Inspired Bio Perception and Robotics Laboratory. So our, our focus is on um, finding inspiration in animals and biology and trying to extract certain reduced order models for um, control and navigation purposes in, for artificial intelligence systems. And so one example of kind of a bio-inspired approach that we took was at the, um, in the first circuit event, we, uh, DARPA had us in a tunnel environment, which is compared to a lot of other environments, very straightforward. It's kind of like a maze. Um, you can imagine one level, two-dimensional, um, with kind of junction and corridor type structure. Um, you can think basically like a coal mine or a gold mine would have that kind of structure. So for that, we used kind of a basic centering algorithm. Uh, and it's, it is bio-inspired in the sense that when insects are kind of flying in a corridor, they naturally want to stay in the middle of the corridor. And when it's a, uh, it's a narrow corridor, they like to slow down so that they're not flying really fast. Um, so we kind of ad adopted a similar approach to kind of have a very simple, straightforward, robust algorithm that worked really well for that environment, which it didn't extend to other environments, but for that specific challenge, it ended up being really successful. So now these messages, um, as just going off of what you said with the, the centering algorithm, these messages that Harrell was saying um, you have to send to the robot, the, are these commands that um, warn it of danger, or are these commands maybe telling it to ch change what it's doing, maybe change an algorithm, change how it's interacting with an environment? So there's kind of two kinds of commands. We have what's known as an emergency stop. So if we sense the robot's in danger, which we can't always do to not being able to see what it's always doing for poor communications in these underground environments, we can send it an emergency stop and it will halt everything it's doing and just stop there. Uh, but primarily what we would use is to kind of change the robot's behavior, mostly at a higher level. For instance, if we notice there's a staircase and we want to send it towards a staircase to climb up to another floor, we'd send one of our robots a uh, waypoint near that staircase so it would go and climb the staircase. Oh, okay. All right. I see that. Um, now, I want to know about the team aspect of the challenge. Just because I know you said there's one human supervisor on the robot, I think you said at any given time, right? Uh, yes. There's, so the way it kind of works at the events is there's the human supervisor, and then there's a pit crew of five members who can set up the robots 
But once the robot's set up and sent out to the course, only the human supervisor can monitor and see anything that comes back from the robot at that point. But beyond the actual competition, our team was primarily consisted of about anywhere from 15 to 20 students, a combination of grads, students, and undergrads. Uh, we competed against eight different universities at the final event uh, with team sizes ranging. Some teams had up to, I'd say, 60. We were on the smaller side. Okay. All right. And were there any sort of difficulties when it came to having that many people and that many cooks in the kitchen, so to say? As I feel like, especially when I'm on a group project, I'd get really mad and I'd just be like, man, I want to do my own individual work. I just want to crank this up. But you have to, right? You have to work as a team. What were the difficulties? So I would say we've learned a lot over the course of the three years on this project. Um, initially, it was a little bit like what you described. Everyone wanted to do their own kind of individual piece. And that led to a lot of challenges integrating all the pieces together at near the beginning of each one of these competitions. Over the last year, Gene and I have actually taken on some uh, project engineering roles to kind of tie a lot of these technical pieces together and do a little bit more team organization, which had which really helped our performance in the final event. Okay. Yeah, and I'll add that like we, we had a lot of people that were really dedicated to, to doing good work and kind of putting a lot of effort into the project. Uh, it was a matter of kind of trying to shepherd people into working on solving the right problems in the right way, if, if that makes sense, and also coordinating um, all the different technologies that we were developing uh, and putting them together, like Harrell said, as opposed to kind of being siloed separately. So that's a big part of this challenge is that a lot of the work and technology that, that we're utilizing, some of it's novel and, and kind of definitely like a more research oriented, but some of it's also picking up off the shelf algorithms and um, kind of different parts of our autonomy stack and just kind of putting them together and making sure that they work well. So DARPA is really good at finding um, kind of grand problems to solve that um, maybe the technology exists, it's out there, researchers have figured out in the lab how to get the results to kind of make this happen, for example, like autonomy in real world environments. But most of it uh, up until this challenge was all isolated. Like this group had a certain algorithm that did this, this group had a certain algorithm that did that, and there was no co kind of cohesive effort to get it all put together. Okay. All right. Yeah. That, okay. So your sort of shepherding ability in the challenge is sort of a microcosm of what you're really trying to do in autonomy. Do you think that human-supervised autonomy, um, like you said now, and even in this DARPA subterranean challenge, do you both think that where autonomy is heading, we're heading towards less human supervision? I'd say that's definitely the trend right now, is less human supervision. Uh, as kind of evidenced by the performance of the team at the final challenge, we're still a bit of a ways away from that. Uh, DARPA had a maximum of 40 points for different things that we could find. And the highest score was 23 at the final event. Uh, so from there, that kind of shows that there's still a ways to go before robots are capable of doing this all autonomously. And one of the areas that's really going to need to be developed for that is 
uh, field of research called kind of semantic understanding, which is letting the robots reason over the environment uh, by themselves. Right now, like I mentioned earlier, our human supervisors providing a lot of the higher level input, like here's a staircase, go up the staircase. The robots really need to, more algorithms need to be developed in an area that allows the robots to understand that something is a staircase and worth investigating and things of that nature to really allow for that autonomy. No, I I, uh, I completely understand who, uh, where you're coming from in terms of, uh, but what is there anything specifically you guys want to see um, out of incoming research uh, in terms of are are you looking for less human supervised or are you looking for other goals in autonomy besides that? Um, I would say that a lot of like research right now is oriented towards yeah trying to get the human out of the loop um and there's like uh, it depends on the application but some of the research is more fundamental where you're not focusing on specific on, a, on an application in this application the question is like let's say you, there's a mine collapse or a fire or a nuclear biochemical kind of incident where it's like too dangerous to send in humans sending in robots might be better than sending in nobody at all in, in order to save some people. Um, like Harrell said, the converse, converse kind of way to look at it is if it's, if, it's a, if it's not a really kind of high risk situation, it's probably better to send in people because you're gonna, you're, you're sending humans to save the people because you're gonna find them faster and you're gonna find them more thoroughly. You're, you're not gonna miss as many things. So if I were kind of <laughs> stuck somewhere and I needed to be saved, I would prefer a human come save me right now. But, you know, maybe that'll change in the next decades, potentially. Okay. So, so kind of going off what Gene was saying, it's really um, autonomy. There's both less human supervision and the ability for robots to perform these tasks faster um, and reason a little bit more like humans would reason when they go into an environment. Uh, that if you ever want to watch, there's DARPA TV has these cha this challenge on YouTube, and you'll notice that the robots go pretty slowly in comparison to what you'd expect a human to go. So that's another area of autonomy that could be improved is the overall speed. All right, for sure. And uh, I wanted to ask you both about your research and specifically how the landscape in what you guys are researching has changed uh, since you both started. And I, I know, Eugene, you started in around uh, 2012 and Harrell in 2015, if you could uh, sort of expand on how it's changed up to today. Sure. So, um, yeah, um, I actually, so I started in the field of robotics uh, three years ago. Um, I had worked in other areas previously, um, but I, I was really interested in kind of like what, what are they capable of and um, kind of can we, push, can we push the limits a little bit further. Um, what I would like to see is robots becoming more reliable, and that's something that this challenge has really pushed on. Um, but also, I would say in terms of a longer-term autonomy and a longer-term kind of um, ability to for you know robots to do intelligent things. Like people talk about, so could robots someday like be washing your dishes for you or like um, doing certain things around the house for you? And I think that's actually like pretty far away, just because it's really hard for right now for robots to reason over their environment really, really reliably. So, like, if you imagine all the things that you have to decide and do every day, like, it's po it probably strings up to hundreds or thousands of different decisions. And if you only mess up once, you know, then your robot ends up on the floor or something like that, or something along those lines. 
And so getting getting robots and AI to be a little bit more, um, I'd say, reliable in the real world setting is something I'm really excited about. Sure. Uh, so one of the so I started my robotics research. Um, it's probably yeah about five or six years ago now. Um, originally, when I first started, one of the areas that I've noticed uh, a lot of evolution is in the sensing capabilities of robots. For example, on the Starper Challenge, we used a 360-degree LiDAR to do a 3D representation of the environment so the robot could have little points on all the objects in the environment and reason over those. So when I first started, those sensors were really only available to self-driving car companies and very, very well-funded labs. And now there's three or four competitors on the market making it much more accessible to the average researcher. Uh, in addition, I've noticed that the compute capability of robots has increased dramatically. Um, there's a lot of compute hardware capable uh, that's out there now that's capable of running some of the modern algorithms that, that even five years ago we were not able to do on an actual robot. You needed a big server to run it, and now it's possible to do it on a single board computer, which is pretty uh, remarkable and has really kind of been a big motivation in pushing the field, having the miniaturized sensors and smaller compute. That's awesome. Now, is there anything you guys would want to add right now? Just anybody listening? Um, yeah, I can add one thing, which is, um, you know, for a lot of us, this project has been a really good opportunity to kind of dig deep and kind of actually have a, a wide breadth of experiences. Um, and kind of when I, you know, exactly, kind of like when I said earlier, I kind of joined this program, I didn't really, I was new to robotics. I was kind of like, basically just a sponge absorbing as much stuff as knowledge as I could. And now I'm at a point where I can appreciate the challenges and the different technical um, kind of directions that are available. And so kind of in the second phase of my PhD program, I'm really interested personally in exploring kind of um, returning back to the bio-inspiration and, and also advances in like neuroscience and how the brain works to understand natural like intelligence and cognition and see if we can kind of take advantage of um, those kind of principles and apply them to artificial intelligence. So that's kind of the direction I'm hoping my research can take in the next couple of years. I'm hopeful that the, uh, the research in, in those other disciplines could be kind of pulled into um, this discipline in terms of computer science and artificial intelligence. Uh, I'd like to just add a little bit more context on how the challenge functioned. Um, sure. So the way it worked, it was a three-year event and there was three different circuit events for three different kind of domains of underground exploration. Uh, a tunnel event, which as Gene described, is a 2D kind of maze environment, think like a gold or coal mine. An urban underground event, which was held at an abandoned nuclear power plant. And then there was supposed to be a cave circuit, which was canceled because of the pandemic. And finally, there was a final event, which we just competed at, where it was a combination of all three domains. And going back to your previous question of how is kind of the technology evolved, even in the course of the three years, we've noticed a significant change kind of in algorithms by the final event. Um, for example, one of the key evolutions was the use of quadruped robots, such as the Boston Dynamic Spot um, dog robot. At the first event, most of those robots would trip pretty frequently and really were not very successful for teams that deployed them. But by the final event, almost everyone was using quadrupeds, able to climb up and down stairs, get over some uh, pretty rough rubble and things of that nature. So that's kind of one of the areas that I'd say has really, really developed even in the last three years as a result of this challenge. Fantastic. Thank you so much. 
Um, now, I think that's all the time we have today, but um, I really want to thank you guys for being here. You guys were an absolute treat. I hope you guys have a great rest of your night. Welcome back to News Underground. This is Jack Armstrong with the Radio 1190. And with me again is Dr. Mark Gordon and Mr. Bob Scribner, uh, researchers in oxygen microbubbles, and with Bob Scribner being the CEO of Respirogen, both gentlemen working with Respirogen to develop the oxygen microbubbles. Um, could you both uh, just say hello into the mic real quick? Sure. Hi. Hello. All right. Now, I was wondering, uh, either both of you or one of you can take this, just give us uh, a broader context of the research you gentlemen are doing. Okay. This is, so this is Mark, um, Mark Borden. I'm a professor at CU in mechanical engineering and also director of biomedical engineering here. Um, so this research started way back when I was a grad student at UC Davis. So I was uh, studying in a group that was... Uh, does a, a field called colloid science, which is like small particles, basically. And, and uh, there was a lot of interest in ultrasound contrast agents, which are these like little bubbles that can reflect the ultrasound really strongly. And, um, and so that was the main, the main focus of the research. But uh, in, the, in the course of that research, we studied um, the stability of these bubbles. Like how can, how can bubbles that small be stable? Because bubbles that small are not supposed to be stable, actually. So... It, it turns out that we use this lipid coating that stabilizes them, but, but part of that research was to study the, the oxygen permeability or the, the, the rate at which oxygen can enter into the bubble and leave the bubble. And so um, during that research, uh, that research came to light in a publication to a, a physician who was at Boston Children's Hospital. And, uh, and he was interested in maybe using microbubbles as an injectable agent. Um, so he was in pediatric critical care, and he had seen p patients, unfortunately, not make it because they were they uh, succumbed to ARDS, which is acute respiratory distress syndrome. And so there wasn't enough time to get them from the bed to the to the ECMO ward. ECMO is what is the way that they treat these patients. So they wanted. He was looking for a way to to. In, to increase the lifespan, basically, and to provide rapid oxygen on demand. And so in that research, um, we came to realize that the intravenous route is, uh, is, is okay for very small volumes, basically, of, of microbubbles. But we consume so much oxygen on the order of hundreds of milliliters per minute that to inject that much into the bloodstream is just too much, too much volume for, the, for our bloodstream. So... Um, the research had then stalled a little bit at that point, and then uh, subsequently I had moved my lab. I, I was a graduate student and a postdoc at UC Davis, and I went to Columbia University, and that's when I was working uh, with this physician in Boston. We just take the, the Amtrak train into each other's labs and worked pretty well. And, and then uh, I moved in, in uh, 2010 out here to see Boulder. And uh, I was working at... I'm, I'm, in mechanical engineering, and there's another uh, professor who works in the area of minimally invasive surgery. And so they, in that, in that uh, field, they often use this, this cavity in the body. It's a body cavity called the peritoneal cavity. And they'll inflate that with carbon dioxide to move around their, their little laparoscopic instruments to do surgery. So 
with that experience, one of the graduate students approached me and said, hey, you, you have oxygen microbubbles. Well, we do this procedure uh, for patients in surgery. I wonder if we could use this cavity with your oxygen microbubbles. So that grad student, his name is Ben Terry, and uh, he went on to take a faculty position at Nebraska. So then we collaborated on that, and we uh, collaborated for some time, and that was a peritoneal cavity. Expanded our collaboration uh, with Keeley Boosing, who's an MD at University of Nebraska Medical Center, and uh, went from small animal models to large animal models of acute respiratory distress syndrome. And uh, there was a lot of interest from the Department of Defense, the Air Force, in maybe using this as a as same idea, on-route care is what they call it, but basically using this to help keep uh, the patients alive as you're transporting them. And so... Um, with that, we, we uh, spun out a company in 2017, Respirogen, and we've been pursuing the, the technology ever since. Now, Bob, did you want to go a little more into your background and uh, how you came to uh, Yeah, spin thank out you. Um, I, I, my undergrad degree is in mechanical engineering, and I started working in med devices while I was an undergrad. And um, doing that, um, Worked in a small startup company outside of Boston uh, for a couple of years and watched that grow uh, and worked with a great bunch of people and got a chance to find out what sort of developing new medical technology is about. So at this point, I've been doing that for 30 years in cardiology, orthopedics, interventional radiology, and some other fields. And um, through a CU Connection, uh, Paul Mountford, who is now director of R&D, for Respirogen, uh, did his PhD in Mark Borden's lab. And Paul knows uh, my son, and through my son, <laughs> knew that I had been doing med medical product work. And, and Paul actually approached the two of us and said, there's some interesting technology at CU in this oxygen transfer medium, and um, you should take a look and see if it's worth developing. So we did. And that's what led to uh, setting up Respirogen. And, and really, uh, what we're trying to do with the technology is offer a new way to put oxygen into the blood when the lungs aren't capable of putting enough oxygen into the blood. So in, if you look at the COVID experience, I think it's a very good example of what this technology might do. Because many people who get COVID, it's about 14% of all COVID patients, which in the U.S. is six and a half million people, have severe lung problems and they can't get enough oxygen in and that's led to everything you've heard about the lack of ventilators and respirators and these kind of problems. And if we are successful with the oxygen microbubbles, we may be able to boost blood oxygen and prevent a COVID patient from needing a ventilator. So if you think about um, how important that might be in keeping the numbers down in the ICU and getting people healthier faster, um, we think it could be a very good thing. And that's what we've been kind of dedicated to here for the last two years. Now, is another focus of the oxygen microbubbles uh, and in terms of the COVID-19 uh, related issues, um, the quality of life associated with being on, an, on a ventilator? Uh, mechanical ventilation, um, patients avoiding that, are, it, that's typically a very good thing, right? It is, yeah. And there's, there's uh, an effect that happens over, over time. 
if the ventilator is doing your work and breathing for you, your lungs actually can become weaker and less capable. And it's ventilator-induced lung injury. So physicians want to keep patients off of the ventilators first in avoiding it if they can, and second, keeping them on it for as brief a period of time as they're able to. And there's a second medical condition called idiopathic pulmonary fibrosis, which is fibrous growth in the lungs. And these are patients who typically have an episode and go on a ventilator for some period of time. When you're on a ventilator, you're conscious and you're intentionally paralyzed in order to reduce oxygen demand in the body. In these IPF patients, when they come off of a ventilator experience, they say, I will never do that again in my life. It is such a difficult thing to endure and recover from. So there are, there are a host of things related to the ventilators that are very challenging for patients, regardless of whether it's COVID, pulmonary fibrosis, ARDS, the, you know, the multiple number of things that put somebody onto a ventilator. Okay. And now, even though with the oxygen microbubbles, uh, the, the use of the lung isn't as um, strenuous on the patient, they still avoid some of the uh, complications that you just yeah, the, the shorter the period of time that you're on a ventilator, the less likelihood you will have a complication from the ventilator. So that's our goal is to cut that, either prevent you from going on it or, or to reduce the time that you're on it. So, yeah, the oxygen microbubbles are injected into a body cavity. They're going to deliver oxygen and supplement the function of the lung. So they're not replacing the lung. They're just they're helping more oxygen get in. So the patient is no longer what we call hypoxic, which means... They're too low on oxygen. So it, it, it bumps them back up to a healthier state without using things like mechanical ventilation. So that's, yeah, that's the idea. Wonderful. Now, I wanted to ask you both about the, like, on-field applications with this beyond just, I was thinking first uh, in an ambulance, uh, in mm -hmm. any case, say someone has COVID, but are there other cases like, per se, uh, on, a, on a battlefield. I know you guys were funded by the Air Force. Yeah, the Air Force has supported the research with grants through the University of Nebraska. Uh, Mark mentioned Keely Busing, who is the principal investigator for the Air Force, and she is a trauma surgeon at the University of Nebraska. So the Air Force is interested in finding ways to provide oxygen in the field both for wounded military personnel who need immediate assistance and for the transport of that personnel from the battlefield back to the medical hospital. Um, so that's a, a primary driver for the Air Force um, sponsorship, which would then go out to other branches of the military. Right. And then in the, in the civilian world, you know, we're thinking that this potentially could be something that goes on to an ambulance. Um, so it would, we would either have the oxygen microbubbles would be stored or perhaps they could be created on demand and then they could be injected into a body cavity or easy access body cavity um, to provide rapid oxygenation. Uh, maybe to transport the patient to a hospital or just to give them a boost maybe to help pre uh, prevent maybe the, the, the need for a ventilator. Okay, I, I was going to ask as well, uh, do, you, do you think this would 
help um, maybe in an operating room setting if a, a, a patient maybe suddenly stops breathing? Um, I think in the OR you have very intensive anesthesia um, requirements and personnel so that that environment is much more controlled and I think it's less likely that you're going to use this in a regular, regularly scheduled uh, surgical type of setting. Okay. Yeah. So the, it's this, the use of this technology is more focused towards um, an emergency response rather than uh, so something that can be controlled. Well, emergency response is a good application. Okay. Because um, let's, let's, for instance, talk about a severe car accident. Um, when the ambulance arrives, there's a uh, order in which they evaluate the people who are injured. Um, and typically, the first thing they do is find out if they're breathing and can they breathe. Do they have an airway? So in the event that someone is injured such that they've um, collapsed their lungs or have high degree of chest trauma, which is very common in, in motor vehicle accidents, um, you could introduce the oxygen microbubbles as an oxygen source while the resuscitation starts to take place from the other injuries uh, obtained from the trauma, whether it's a car crash or someone falls off the roof of a building or any number of things that, that might happen. So there's a number of scenarios where first responders could start delivery of oxygen without interfering with the routine steps of care that they do today when they respond. Now, beyond the current testing that you're already doing, do you both either see a, um, a distribution plan in terms of testing it in hospital environments, in concentrated uh, emergency settings on emergency vehicles, that sort of thing? Or do you think it's going to be rolled out much quicker than that uh, in other settings like the Army? Well, you, you get into, uh, let's call them strategies about clinical use, all right? And the emergency situation is an interesting difference from the COVID situation. In the COVID situation, you have a conscious patient who comes into the hospital and says, I'm not feeling well. I can't breathe. They take an oxygen measurement. They'll say, your, your oxygen is very low. We need to address that right away. Um, we have this new opportunity with oxygen microbubbles. Would you like to be part of that clinical study? And that patient can say yes and choose to participate in the study. And we would treat a group of patients, and the number is probably three to 400 in total, and then analyze the data from that group of patients to say, did they do better if they got the oxygen microbubbles than if they refused the oxygen microbubbles? What becomes challenging in emergency response is if you have a trauma patient who's non-responsive and the first responders can see that they are oxygen deficient, either by pulse oximetry measurement or the fact that they're not breathing when they arrive, you know, a couple of different indicators. That patient is physically unable to say, yes, I want to be in a clinical study. So informed consent is required for early evaluation of medical technology. So I think we're not likely to do our first work in emergency and trauma, but that would come after we prove that it's safe and effective in a different population that can 
willingly take part in the trials we need to run. Understood. Now, I'm just thinking back to it to something you said, Dr. Gordon, about the permeability. And, I, and you said that the oxygen can, the permeability is the ability for the oxygen to go through the bubble. Now, is the oxygen not the bubble itself? Because I think that's a misconception I have. Yeah, no, the oxygen is primarily the bubble. It can, it's comprising 99% of the volume of the bubble. But then the, the key is that you have this little shell of lipid, and it's very similar to the, to the film of lipid that actually coats our lung alveoli. So in, at the, in our lung, there are these terminal sacs called alveoli, and each one is coated by this little, we call it a monomolecular film or a monolayer of lipid, it's very thin, it's one molecule thick of lipid, and it, it reduces the surface tension and provides structural integrity that allows your, your alveoli to remain stable. And at the same time, it's highly permeable to gases. It needs to allow carbon dioxide and oxygen to exchange. And so what we're doing is we're essentially mimicking with a synthetic formulation, um, but we're mimicking that, that, that film and we're coating that on trillions of bubbles per milliliter and, and to very high volume fractions. So our, the total volume fraction is up around 70 to 80 volume percent. Um, so it's a high fraction of, of oxygen, but it's, it's dispersed in these tiny little bubbles that are 1 to 10 micrometers. So to give you a scale, that's about 1% to 10% of the size of, a, of the diameter of a human hair. So they're very, very fine bubbles. And it's that high, because of their small size, they have a large surface area per volume. And so that allows the rapid transport of these gases, carbon dioxide and, and oxygen. So, and the, and the, lip, the lipid shell also provides some structural integrity. So it allows the oxygen to p pass into the patient, but also allows for the absorption of carbon dioxide. So the bubble does, doesn't, doesn't disappear and leave its, uh, after it gives off its oxygen, it can also absorb carbon dioxide. And, we think that's another really important part of this mechanism of action. There's, uh, there's some interesting history, and, and I think the oxygen microbubbles to me are uh, a good example of one of my favorite technology books, which is called The Slow Pace of Fast Change. So people work on things for a long, long time trying to take an idea like delivering oxygen without the lungs and make it successful. And what happens again and again in a lot of fields is after 10 or 20 or 30 years of work, suddenly something changes what's being done and it becomes successful. And Mark, you might want to talk about the history of other materials and attempts to provide oxygen that have taken place over the last 20 years and what's different here is the lipid chemistry and the formulation that Mark has created is what's now enabling this to be successful after effort with a lot of different media over a long period of time. Right. I, if you could, I, I could elaborate a bit on that. I yeah, mean, you could. That'd be fantastic. The idea of supplementing the lung is, is an old one. It goes back uh, at least 100 years um, where people tried to use the peritoneal cavity or the colon to oxygenate a patient whose lung wasn't functioning fully. And this is even before the advent of mechanical ventilators. And um, uh, so all kinds of things were tested. 
first and foremost was just putting air directly in or maybe pure oxygen gas directly into the body cavity. But the, it, it never really worked. And the problem is, even if you hydrate it, because one problem was that you're putting dry air into the body, but if you, even if you hydrate it, so it's humid oxygen, um, still, the, because there's a relatively small surface area to volume, it doesn't provide, it doesn't transmit fast enough. And so, um, and so other attempts were made. Uh, there's been studies where people have used actually red blood cells that were oxygenated and then put into the peritoneal cavity. People have tried using what's called liposomal hemoglobin, which are like basically synthetic uh, red blood cells that are made. And people have tried to use perfluorocarbons. Perfluorocarbons are known for being these, um, uh, this liquid that can, that can absorb gases pretty well. But none of these have really uh, panned out. They, and and the, really the key is the lack of the surface area to volume ratio. So it's trying to mimic the lung alveoli and then using that concept has, has been, I think, the big step forward. What I'm curious of is when you mentioned the synthetic red mm -hmm. blood cells, I, I, I believe it had the prefix lip, like right. lipid. So is there, what is the key difference between the lipid my, oxygen microbubbles that you have yeah. and the synthetic, yeah. I'm assuming, fatty uh, red blood cells? Yeah, these, they're, they're basically uh, uh, what we call a liposome. So it has, instead of a monolayer, it has a bilayer. And it has liquid on the inside and the outside. Uh, so water is on the inside and the outside. And then inside you can entrap hemoglobin. So it has this, this oxygen binding molecule inside. But the thing is that hemoglobin, it always has some affinity for oxygen, even at low oxygen concentration or oxygen partial pressure. So it never really gives up fully the oxygen very easily. It's only at very, very low. Um, where the oxygen microbubble, it doesn't involve this chemical reaction of binding to hemoglobin. Instead, it just diffuses straight from the bubble. We're just using the, the, the process of diffusion, which is this natural process that's always occurring. And so that um, allows 100% of the egress of the oxygen and the lipid shell provides that mechanical structural integrity that allows then the, the reabsorption of carbon dioxide. Now, I wanted to ask you both as we're sort of winding down this interview, where do you both see respirogen in the near future? Well, these technologies, um, you know, this is an example of the type of technologies that um, CU is looking to bring to uh, commercialization. So we worked very closely with the tech transfer office, um, the ventures group at CU who uh, run some really terrific programs to help companies be formed out of the labs here. Um, what the personnel, myself, our director of R&D, Paul Mountford, our director of operations, Robbie Scribner, um, we have industry experience in order to set up the quality controls, the manufacturing processes, and understand the requirements to get FDA approval for the oxygen microbubbles to be used in a patient who needs them. So that's what um, we're bringing to the technology that Mark has created. We actually um, took the manufacturing process from Mark's lab and set that up in our facility and then 
uh, with the Air Force support, kind of re-engineered that so that we get uh, much greater volume in much less time. We know that we can produce it for reasonable cost uh, and that it's reliable. So these are the kinds of steps to go from the laboratory out to commercialization that Respirogen is working on. Um, and the first and most important thing for us will be to get some human experience. And uh, we have a relationship with the Human Performance Lab at Colorado State. They are prepared to start to treat humans when we have an approval from the FDA. And we're communicating with the FDA and in, by January expect to have an agreement with them on the timing of starting those studies. So we think in the first part of 2022, we will be treating uh, the first human subjects here in Colorado with the microbubbles. Yeah, and that'll be primarily a safety study just to, uh, to, to show lack of adverse events. And we don't, obviously, we don't anticipate any adverse events. The, sim, the formulation is actually amazingly simple. We use uh, phospholipids, we use saline, and we use oxygen gas. Um, so all of them are, are considered safe, um, but it's just that we're doing this in a new way. So we're, we're putting these, uh, we're suspending the oxygen in these microbubble foam, and then we're giving this in the body cavity. So there still has to be testing, and that's, that's what we're doing. Well, is there anything else you gentlemen would like to add? Um, no, I just thank you very much for the opportunity to talk about um, Risperigen and the oxygen bubbles. Of course. Thank you guys for being here. Thank you.